welcome, welcome, welcome to yet another edition of Bagoons Barrage, the State of New England podcast with me, your host, as always, Jake Donnelly, a.k.a. Bagoon. Well, this intro, it's going to sound a lot like the previous one. Everything is good in the land of the Boston Celtics. Not a single thing is good in the land of the Boston Bruins. But before we get to either one of those zip codes, we first have to travel all the way to the magical land of Disney for our topic of the day. So this week, I took the time out to go see the live-action remake of Beauty and the Beast. And to my surprise, because I'm a curmudgeon and thinks that no classic should ever be remade, if something is a classic, it means they pretty much nailed it the first time they did it. So no need to ever remake any classics. But to my surprise, I actually somewhat enjoyed this remake of Beauty and the Beast. I give it overall a B. Very enjoyable. I think it's a lot more adult than the cartoon version. And before I get into what I did not like about it, first, I have to discuss the thing that everybody was talking about before the movie actually premiered, and that was Bill Condon, the director of the movie, and his confession that there was a decidedly quote-unquote gay moment in the movie. Now, it doesn't come until the very, very end of the movie, and quite frankly, in 2017. If you have a problem with, and I won't give away the ending and stuff like that, but in 2017, if you have a problem with something like that, there's a lot more wrong with you than your analysis of a movie and whether or not you enjoyed a movie. LeFou, the character played by Josh Gad, the one that was an ugly stump of a character, in the original 1991 version, the sidekick of Gaston, the big burly guy. Well, in this one, instead of being a little stumpy dude, he's Josh Gad playing a gay version of LeFou, which really isn't that much of a stretch from the 1991 version of LeFou. There's nothing really to it. They do kind of they force the theme a little bit that LeFou is gay, but they do it so that there's a payoff at the end. And it's a good payoff. You're, you're, you can kind of take or leave LeFou throughout the first really three quarters of the movie. He is just uh, Gaston's sidekick. Then you realize that he's starting to have doubts about Gaston and maybe this guy who he is absolutely infatuated with. But he's starting to have doubts that maybe this isn't the type of guy that he should follow. I believe Condon's line was, LeFou is a confused character. At one moment, he wants to be by Gaston's side. And then the next moment, he wants to be with him in the obvious sense, in the loaded sense. And during the um, Gaston song, he makes a couple of remarks that in the 1991 version where he says... I believe the exact line is, which team do you want to be on? Which in 1991 was more of a throwaway line. Here in 2017, and he even winks at the time, it's clearly referencing LeFou is gay, and he has these feelings for Gaston. Now, everybody freaked out about it because there's finally a canonically gay character in Disney. But it really did not have much to do with the story, and really from my standpoint, it was actually the only way that the LeFou character made sense. And that's not Josh Gad's fault, and it's not even Disney's fault. It's probably Bill Condon's because, and this is my biggest pet peeve, 
of the entire movie. It's that Gaston sucked. In the 1991 version, Gaston is this big, burly guy, a domineering presence. He is not a good guy. He's He berates people. He bites people. And within the song, they still leave that one comment there. Uh, anyways, in the new live-action remake of the song and the movie in general. But he... In 1991, he's this big presence. He's domineering. He owns every single scene that he is in. Well, in the live-action remake, Luke Evans plays Gaston. And instead of being a guy that is literally twice the size of LeFou and most of the other people in the town, and everybody is afraid of Gaston, in this remake, he's six foot. There's nothing to him. They reference some things about what he did in the war, but... It's they're like toss-away lines. There's nothing to them. And in this one, he talks about how he could be an intimidating presence and how his biceps increase. It's like, what? What? He's small. I'm bigger than him. I'm literally six foot one and roughly 200 pounds. I'm bigger than Luke Evans. Luke Evans, there's nothing to him. There's nothing dominating, domineering about the character. So you're supposed to be afraid of Gaston and Beauty in the and the Beast? No, not really. Anybody could whoop him at any point during the film. In that bar scene, when they sing the Gaston song, which I actually think, by the way, was better in this version than in the cartoon version, but when everybody's singing, they're guys that are legitimately bigger than Luke Evans, who's playing Gaston. Now, it's, it's a casting issue. Maybe... There weren't any guys that were big, like six foot four, six five. You probably should have had him six six. Okay, put something in his boots. Make him bigger. Stuff out his shirt. Do something. Maybe there weren't guys that could sing. I don't know. But Gaston as a character in 2017 sucks. They take him from what was this domineering, almost badass character. And I do not mean that in a good way, but he was a jerk. He was a big jerk. He was a strong jerk. He was a big old bad bully man, right? That's what he was in 1991. But in 2017, 2000, why I never say that. In 2017, they turned him into like a preppy frat guy. I, I've seen so many of these guys when I went to college at Trinity College. The only thing Gaston was missing was a golf club, some pastels, and an upturned collar. That's pretty much who Gaston was in this movie. He was not intimidating. There was nothing scary about him. The only thing that made him scary was he had a pistol. That was it. There was nothing else about him that was, I keep going back to the word, but there was nothing intimidating about him. There was nothing that drew you to him. And when it was LeFou, played by Josh Gad, in a scene with Gaston, played by Luke Evans, you were more drawn to LeFou. LeFou was the much better character of the two. LeFou was more developed. He was more drawn out. And LeFou's character arc was really much more entertaining than Gaston's. Gaston is supposed to be the supreme villain, and he just sucked. He was just a preppy dude. He was a preppy D-bag. That's all Gaston was. Whereas LeFou started off as this guy who was just a mere sidekick. Then all of a sudden, he kind of becomes complicit in Gaston's um, plan to wed Belle. 
and LeFou has some very obvious reservations. He then lies in the bar scene, as we know he's going to. But by the end of the movie, you are rooting for LeFou, which is what Bill Condon did, the director. He did a magnificent job with this character arc because what he did was he took the first gay character in the entire Disney canon. Maybe I'm overlooking something, but he is explicitly... By the confession of Bill Condon, the first gay character in a Disney film. And what he does is he makes you root for him by the end of the film. The only people that are not rooting for LeFou, for Josh Gad, by the end of the film are bigots. There's no other way to put it, right? If you are not rooting for LeFou by the end of the movie, you are not rooting for LeFou because you think there's something wrong with being gay. Which, in 2017, if that's your problem, you've got a ton of problems that you have to sort out. Now, that was the controversy entering this film. By the time the film was over, I'm like, oh, okay, he's gay. So what? And I think the vast majority of people that watched this movie, that was their thought as well. There was just nothing really to it except for the fact that it, in my opinion, really helped out his character arc and explained why he would try to stick with Gaston when he could see it quite explicitly that Gaston was not a good dude. Maybe he was at one point, but this infatuation with Belle put him overboard. He tries to kill Maurice, played by Kevin Klein, who was very good, and he then tries to kill the Beast and, you know, just wasn't good. I did not like Gaston, and when your villain is not a good guy, that is a big problem. I mean, when your villain, obviously, he's not a good guy, but when I mean he's not played by a character that matches, by an actor that matches the character, bad things are going to happen. It's not going to be as believable. But I will say what was believable, that was the acting of guys like Josh Gad, of Emma Watson, who is not my favorite. Kevin Klein, not surprisingly, was wonderful. Dan Stevens, whom, if you have seen him play David Haller in FX's Legion, you know for sure he can handle a decidedly tricky character. He's trying to play a beast who somehow has to flirt with this gorgeous and smart woman. And he gets the job done. Emma Watson does a wonderful job in terms of portraying this headstrong, smart woman who does not want to be seen for her look. She wants to be known for what is on the inside, that she is an intellectual. Yes, the movie does at times absolutely beat a dead horse, giving you the kind of like feminist, and it's not, I shouldn't say necessarily feminist, but they literally come out and say verbatim on multiple occasions, oh, look at that bell, she is so fearless, she is so headstrong. All right, yeah. If the first century of movies have been made by dudes for dudes and women, for the most part, have been portrayed as the damsel in distress, yeah, this is a refreshing take on that kind of old trope. No, she's not a damsel in distress. She intentionally puts herself in harm's way over and over and over again. That's it's good, and it was a good job by Disney. I like the way that Emma Watson played her character. She had an awful start to the movie. The movie itself was awful at the beginning. The first half of the movie went on like a drunken snail. It was not exactly a quick pace, to say the least. There was an early scene between Emma Watson and Kevin Klein, between Belle and Maurice, daughter and father. That was one of the more poorly acted scenes I have seen. 
in a long time. But once they get by that and once the movie kind of hits the halfway mark, then it jumps off like a startled colt. Like, it does a very good job. It really does. And it was an enjoyable flick. It should probably be about a half hour shorter. The runtime is two hours and nine minutes. Uh, the original from 1991, I believe, was one hour and 24. Yeah, one hour and 24 minutes in the original 1991 version. And I think it would have been a much better movie if they had stuck a little bit closer to that time frame instead of going for 129 minutes. But every movie nowadays is two hours. Uh, the magical reveal at the end is kind of fun because you will take a look at the characters that come out that were just voices for 98% of the film. And if you were like me, you were trying to figure out, I love doing that in movies where there's animation and voices trying to figure out just who exactly that voice belongs to. And during the final magical reveal, if you haven't figured it, uh, figured it out, you're going to go, I cannot believe that was the actor. Um, so that's always fun. The acting in this one was much better than the 1991. I think it hit home a couple of more points in the newest iteration. I think because it was actual people that were more poignant parts to the movie, the backstory with the family, actually, of Bell and Maurice. That was fleshed out. That was really enjoyable. So that was cool to see. And when it came to the music, eh, I keep thinking maybe it was the movie theater I was in, but I always purposely sit right in the middle of the theater. And I saw 10 o'clock a.m. I saw a 10 in the morning version, and it was at the uh, number one movie theater in the theater that I go to, which is always the best in terms of sound and the screen because it has the stadium seating. But during most of the music, you uh, some of the lyrics, they're kind of, you can't decipher them. They're unintelligible. The, the music is too loud in the bigger number. So the actual lyrics kind of get drowned out. Again, maybe it was the theater that I saw the movie in, but I highly doubt it. Uh, the actual voices, the people singing, weren't nearly as good in this version as compared to the 1991 version. But overall, as a movie, it was enjoyable. It's not a classic. It will not go down as a classic. But it is definitely worth the money if you are taking your girlfriend or if you're a girl and you want to take your boyfriend to it. Or uh, with LeFou, hey, if you're a boyfriend, if you're a guy that wants to take his boyfriend or a girl that wants to take their girlfriend, whatever. It's a good, it's an enjoyable movie. But at the same time, it's villain sucks. The songs aren't up to snuff, but because it is an adult version of the 1991 children's movie, it hits home better in certain spots. And if you are a weaker soul or more in touch with your emotion, either one, you can get a, a bit verklempt with it. So it's good. It's enjoyable. And if you're deciding on whether or not to go see the movie absolutely go see the movie. It is definitely worth it, no matter how much Gaston is unappealing and ineffective as the villain in a Disney movie. Still worth the price of admission, and it's definitely worth a small popcorn with a large water, which is what I do every single time because I absolutely refuse to change up any of my routines. All right, so Beauty and the Beast version 2.0, version 2017. Hey, it's good. Josh Gad's character, LeFou, is gay. Who cares? His character is probably one of my favorite in the movie. Beast, as played 
by Stevens. Dan Stevens is wonderful, and the movie is enjoyable. So go out and see it. Have yourself a good time. Two hours, nine minutes, so two and a half hours with previews as previews run, usually about 20 minutes or so. So do, do yourself a favor and go see that. One thing that you shouldn't go see, though, right now, at least with the way they are playing, that the Boston Bruins. Good God. The Bruins are doing it again. Bruins in the midst of a losing streak because apparently they cannot help themselves. The Bruins at the moment are two points ahead of the New York Islanders for the second and final wild card spot in the Eastern Conference. The Bruins, they have 82 points. The Islanders have 80. One huge problem. The Bruins have played 74 games. The Islanders just 72. And the Carolina Hurricanes, with two games in hand, are only three points behind. So the Bruins have a bevy of teams that they have to fight off for that last spot in the playoffs. And last night against the Tampa Bay Lightning, the Bruins just imploded. It was a game in which the Bruins were ahead by a goal on three separate instances. It was a scoreless first period, good goaltending by Tuka Rask. And then the second period, oh, not good. David Pasternak, he finally scored for the first time in the last handful of games. It was a wide open, perfectly teed up opportunity. And Pasternak potted his 32nd goal of the year. That came at 133 of the second period. And here is where the Bruins were just abysmal in the game. Power play goal by David Pasternak at 1.33 of the second period to put the Bruins up 1-0. Okie dokie. We get to the two-minute mark. Bruins still up 1-0. We get to the 2.15 mark. Bruins still up one to nothing. But at the 2.17 mark. In other words, less than a minute later, the Bruins allow the Lightning's Braden Point to score to make it 1-1. Before the PA announcement was over and the Bruins fans could celebrate and go, woo, the fact that they were up 1-0, Lightning scored 1-1. All right, Bruins, what are you going to do? Are you going to respond? Let's see how it goes, right? Okay. Well, then Brandon Carlo at 725 of the second period gets called for tripping uh, against Andre Palat. Okay, so now the Bruins have to kill off a big penalty, right? It's 1-1. You have to kill off the penalty. You're thinking, just get done with this penalty kill, and maybe you can score a 5-on-5 goal for the first time in almost three games. Well, the Bruins do a little bit better than that. Bruins get a rush going on the shorthand, a 2-on-3. You heard that right. Not a 3-on-2, but a 2-on-3. And a pass to the slot gets tipped, and Zdeno Char jumps up on the rush and buries a shorthanded opportunity to put the Bruins up 2-1. to one. That at the 7.50 mark of period number two. All right, so Zidane Char uh, gets his second shorthanded goal with Bruce Cassidy as the head coach. Things are good. Bruins are up at 7.50. 24 seconds later, Nikita Kucherov ties the game at 2-2 on that same power play. So once again, before the PA announcer could finish his announcement for the Bruins' goal and have the fans, woo! Yep, the Lightning score to tie 2-2. First palm should have had a V8. 
All right, it's 2-2. Whatever. Every time the Lightning score, the Bruins bounce back. Let's see if the Bruins can do that again. Still second period. All right. 13-18. Riley Nash banks one home off of a Tampa Bay Lightning defender. The checking line gets the job done to put the Bruins up 3-2. And now everybody's thinking, just for the love of all that is holy, get past the PA announcement. So what happens? Yes. Yes, the Bruins and their fans at TD Bank North Garden finally get to, woo, right? Everything is good about a minute and a half after the goal. Things are great. The Bruins are up 3-2. And, you yeah, know, the Bruins, one minute and 35 seconds after going up 3-2, allow Anton Strollman to tie the game at 3-3. Three, three. So they barely got by the PA announcement before they let the Lightning tie the game. Now, the problem with this is that it's even it, it's almost more disheartening to grab the lead and then give it up that quickly because the momentum goes to the other team that keeps on fighting back because now they think that there's no way they can lose that game. And the Bruins in a game that they had to win in the third period tied 3-3. Three, three. <sighs> Allowed three goals to the Tampa Bay Lightning. Did not really put up much of a fight at all. Just one of the worst games I have seen. Now, a lot of people are saying that the Bruins are giving up and they're playing the same way that they had the previous two seasons. Statement one, I completely disagree with. Statement two, yeah, I kind of agree with that one. The Bruins right now, they're just not getting the job done. It's not for lack of trying. It's not for lack of effort. Because last night we saw David Krejci. We were told by Andy Brickley that he snapped his stick against the boards, right? And then later on in the game, they showed an instance of Brad Marchand doing the same thing. These guys are trying. They're frustrating. But right now, they're doing, and uh, the problem is they're all pressing. That's what they are doing. And you can't press in a situation like the one that the Bruins are in right now. Pressing is the worst thing. That you can do. And that is exactly what they are doing. They are making the same mistakes that they made two years ago. They are making the same mistakes that they committed last season. And this year, the mistakes are even more noticeable because this was a team that was playing so well, so, so well, just a couple of weeks ago. And it's... It's disheartening because the dichotomy between how well they were playing a couple of weeks ago and how they are playing now, there's whatever they're doing, they're not doing a good job. Tuka Rask, I don't know if he's tired. I have not been one of his biggest fans, one of his biggest proponents over the years because the Bruins and previously Claude Julian rode him too much. Well, the problem is now... It seems like the backup goaltending issues, which, by the way, Anton Hudobin has won his last four games in net after winning just one, only one backup win prior to this current streak for Anton Hudobin, but he's won his last four. And maybe the moment is too big for Rask. He had that horrible minute in game six against the Chicago Blackhawks in 2013 in the Stanley Cup Finals, and maybe he just doesn't have those big gamer moments. Maybe it's just a mental block. Maybe he has to get back 
to the playoffs. Maybe that's what's going on right now. But there's just there's something that is in his head. There was something that is in the Bruins' head that has stopped them from playing good quality hockey at the end of the season. And we're seeing it again. We're seeing a team that is imploding. Anybody that has ever seen a team choke, unfortunately, it's chicken little time. The sky is, in fact, falling. Those aren't raindrops. Those, it's hail. That's hail coming down out of the sky right now. Big, softball-sized pieces of hail is falling out of the sky right now. The Bruins are clinging to that final playoff spot. Now, the one thing they have going is that they still have a pretty easy schedule the rest of the way. They can win out, and if they do that, obviously, getting 16 points right now, they can make the playoffs. 16 points gives you 98 points on the year, and that will get you into the playoffs. 98? I think I... No, 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 not 98. Um, Yes, 98. The Bruins are at 82 points. I said that the Bruins needed 95 points to make it to the playoffs. I still think that 95 points is exactly where they need to get to the playoffs and just barely hang on to that final playoff spot. But right now, it looks like 90 points might be asking for a little bit much. So we'll see what the Bruins can do here. But right now, it is not looking good. Their top line not getting the job done. They finally scored five on five. They actually scored in all three facets of the game. In last night's game against the Tampa Bay Lightning, they had a power play goal, they had a shorthanded goal, and they had a five on five goal, but it was not enough. And right now, that is the theme for the Boston Bruins. Whatever they are doing right now, it is not enough. So the sky is falling in the land of the Boston Bruins. But when it comes to the Boston Celtics, hey, it's all rainbows, daisies, and gumdrops. The Bruins won their last game, and right now in the standings, the Bruins are just, make that excuse me, the Celtics are just one game behind the Cleveland Cavaliers. They have the same amount of wins, 46 wins for the Cavaliers and 46 for the Boston Celtics. The Celtics defeating the Wizards was huge as they are now three games up in the win column, and two games up in the loss column. The one problem, though, is that the Cavaliers are two games up in the loss column. The Cavs have 24, the Celtics 26, and the Wizards 28. Celtics are two and a half games up on the Wizards, three games up on the Raptors, just one game behind the Cleveland Cavaliers for the top spot in the East. So that pipe dream for Celtics fans at the beginning of the season which really people just wanted them to be a three seed right now. There is an outside chance, especially with the way that the Cavs are resting everybody, but there is an outside chance that the Boston Celtics, they of the no real superstar team, can pull down a one seed. It is a legitimate possibility, an outside one, but still yet a legitimate possibility, and the Celtics still have the best schedule the rest of the way. So we'll see what the Celtics can do. Tonight, they have a decent test as they will be taking on the Phoenix Suns, which usually is not the hardest team to play against. The Suns, not a good team at all, but the Celtics have had all sorts of trouble with them. Remember, they had that funky loss on the road where Isaiah Thomas turned the ball over in the final five seconds, which led to a game-winning three by the Suns. But the Celtics, they can continue their uh, their winning ways And heck, maybe after today, they could be a half game 
behind the top spot. You never know, especially right now with the way that the NBA is going. If the Celtics play their game and beat the Suns, a team that should not, a team that they should not lose against, hey, things are good. People need to calm down when it comes to Al Horford. He is putting together his best month of the season here in March. Isaiah Thomas is his usual rock steady self. Jay Crowder, healthy, knocking down threes, doing whatever he has to do. Avery Bradley, he has been dominant on the defensive end, and his secondary scoring has really alleviated the burden for Isaiah Thomas, and I think that is why the Celtics are playing so well as of late. It's the fact that right now you can't key on one guy on the Celtics, and when they need an inside bucket, at least in March, all they've had to do is go to Al Horford. It's good. He's playing more energetic. He's more engaged. He's coming up with blocks. This is a pretty scary team, and more surprisingly than anything else, the Celtics, they're rebounding. When the Celtics can rebound, they're going to win games. And right now, they're winning games. Celtics heading towards the playoffs on a high note. The Bruins heading towards the end of the season, maybe missing the playoffs on a low note. Two teams going in entirely different directions. They're going in an X right now, if you had to make a graph. Celtics, <laughs> the old Yodel guy from Price is Right, the Bruins, no, no, no. If he's the Yodel guy, he's at the top of that cliff, and he is about to fall off. We'll see if the Bruins can staunch the bleeding. Right now, they need their top line to show up, and they need a superb, superb performance from their goalie, whether that be Tuka Rask or whether it be Anton Hudobin. Somebody needs to step up for the Boston Bruins. Zidane Chara tried to do it. In the last game, and he did a very good job, but it just didn't seem like the rest of the team really buckled on down. So that will do it for this iteration and episode of Bagoon's Barrage. A little recap and hopefully about a sentence. Hey, if you want to see the Beauty and the Beast, that is worth your time. The Boston Bruins, it is officially chicken little time. The sky is falling. The sky is falling. Big softball-sized pieces of hail falling out of the sky and for the Boston Celtics, rainbows, daisies, and gumdrops just one game behind the Cleveland Cavaliers for top spot in the Eastern Conference. So thank you once again for tuning in to Bagoons Barrage, the State of New England podcast with me, your host as always, Jake Donnelly, a.k.a. Bagoon. But for now, that will do it from the State of New England. And as always, go New England. I love to hate it with it.